Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 30th of September 2013, and it is my great pleasure again to be speaking to Dr. Tim Ball, who again joins us all the way from the west coast of Canada. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Ball, those few of you who are not familiar with him, he is a retired professor of climatology at the University of Winnipeg, where he taught for 25 years. And in addition to a career of teaching and research, he's also been very active for many years as an environmentalist, an interest which he continues to pursue in his still rather busy retirement or so-called retirement, in which he is also a frequent public speaker, consultant, author and columnist. And Dr. Ball was technical advisor and one of the specialists featured in Martin Durkin's 2007 documentary, The Great Global Warming Swindle, which if you haven't seen, I do recommend you see that. It's a very, very informative documentary. Dr. Ball, it's great to have you on for a second time. So thank you ever so much for joining us again. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And by the way, that uh, documentary was recommended by the UK court who found that Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth was politically biased and had nine major scientific errors, and that in the classroom, the teachers should consider showing the great global warming swindle as an antidote to Gore's Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, I really do think everybody should see that. And I don't know how much that's being followed up on in in British schools, but uh, let's hope that is so that people can actually see both sides of the argument. Exactly. Now, the last time that we spoke, we were talking about the politicization of climate science over the years, where an extreme environmentalism that's against industrial society has sort of hijacked that scene. And you explained the role of a number of things, the Club of Rome and Maurice Strong and his influence upon the United Nations, uh, leading up, of course, to the theory of anthropogenic global warming, which we talked about, and the subsequent climate gate revelations, which we've had over the last few years. But today, I'd like to ask you about a closely related matter, and that is the subject of population control and reduction. Now, I recently had the opportunity to speak to Dr. Stanley Monteith about this, because it's a particular area of interest of his, and he's convinced that there are influential elites which are determined to reduce human population. And as part of that conversation, he mentioned a quote from none other than our Prince Philip here in the UK, the Duke of Edinburgh, who said in 1988, and so if you haven't heard this, everybody, brace yourself for this. This is Prince Philip. He said, in the event that I'm reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus to contribute something to solving overpopulation. Well, a response to that, and I'll let people catch their breath for a minute. Um, The first thing that pops into my mind, of course, is the old joke about reincarnation. As the fellow said, uh, I don't believe in reincarnation, but then I didn't believe in it last time I was here either. (laughs) But but beyond that is the sheer arrogance of that kind of comment. And of course, if I had control of that virus and was able to reduce population, I would start with certain monarchies and... uh, (laughs) And of course, I say that tongue in cheek, uh, Julian, but Mm. it really speaks to the whole issue of these people. Who decides who's going to be reduced in numbers? How do you decide that? That's what Philip's comment really conjures up. Oh, well, we've got enough of those people. We won't allow any more of them. And you can see the, the inherent danger and the complete lack of understanding that the comment tells you. 
there's no way that if that were to happen that uh, he would be happy with the notion that it would hit his own family of course well exactly and it does speak to a much larger issue that i know that philip is privy to and that is a lot of people in high places who want to control population and limit population and of course Philip has chosen a particularly Philippian method and, and of, of doing it. The one thing about Philip is that his carbon footprint fits in his mouth very nicely. <laughs> He's not known for uh, coming out with the most respectful comments, it has to be said. Well, it, it's the old story about he puts his mouth in gear before he puts his brain <laughs> in gear. But the difficulty is, of course, that it's a failure to accept the responsibility of his position. We see this in so many things today. People have a status in society. Celebrities, for example, are given a stage to sing, but they then start using that stage for pushing their own political views and agenda. That's not to say they're not entitled to those, but they're not entitled to use that stage for that purpose. And that, that's the difference. And of course, it shows a complete failure of leadership on Philip's part. And of course, something of this attitude has very much crept into the extreme environmentalist scene. And I just thought that I would drag up a quote because I think it's quite revealing. This is by Paul W. Taylor, the environmental ethics professor, in his book, Respect for Nature. And I'm going to read from page 115. This is a very famous quote. Given the total, absolute and final disappearance of Homo sapiens, then, not only would Earth's community of life continue to exist, but in all probability, its well-being would be enhanced. Our presence is is, in short, not needed. And if we were to take the standpoint of that life community and give voice to its truest interest, the ending of the human epoch on Earth would most likely be greeted with a hearty good riddance. Now, I suspect that, you know, there's some jocularity in what he's saying there, but he's using the platform that he has, I think, to deliver a message that's most unpleasant, really. Well, of, of course, it, it's ludicrous because um, who would be around to say good riddance? <laughs> you know, that's what's laughable about it. But this very deep-seated anti-humanity mm. pervades the whole environmental movement. I can read another one. This is David Graeber, a research biologist with the U.S. National Park Service. He says, human happiness and certainly human fecundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know social scientists who remind me that people are part of nature, but it isn't true. Somewhere along the line, at about a billion years ago, we quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth. And so this kind of mentality pervades that whole uh, idea. I was familiar with it, just to be tongue-in-cheek about it, I was familiar with it working at the university because, of course, for many of the academics, they say if we could just get rid of the students, it'd be a great place to work. <laughs> and so that idea, we've got another one, David Suzuki, the Canadian former genetics professor. And, of course, eugenics was the center to the idea of controlling and limiting and determining uh, who could and who couldn't live. These are not new ideas. But Suzuki said economics is a very species chauvinistic idea. No other species on Earth, and there are maybe 30 million of them, and he's wrong in that, has had the nerve to put forth a concept called economics in which one species, us, declares the right to put value on everything else on Earth in the living and non-living world. Well, he should ask himself why that one species has that ability to develop economics. All the other species put a value on all the other species, but they simply look at them as, as a food source. 
And, and so it's just bizarre thinking among supposedly intelligent people. And so Philip's not alone. And I, I presume that somebody like Suzuki is coming at this from a purely materialistic perspective where you cannot assign any value to human beings in any transcendent sense. And so therefore you're going to say, well, everything, every species is the same. So why should one be ranked higher than the other? Well, of course, that's that's another part of the underlying theme of the whole environmental movement. On the one hand, they want to say that humans are natural, but on the other hand, they don't want to accept Darwin's survival of the fittest, and who's the fittest and the most adaptable than humans. So they have this philosophical contradiction, and you see that in the books that are around, apparently completely separate from the environmental debate, but actually very fundamental to it. Richard Dawkins, for example, that God is dead and Christopher Hitchens and other people, that's all part of the same debate, uh, because if you think back, when um, they used Darwin uh, as a very, what would have been very reluctant champion to defeat religion, they also got rid of God, which got rid of humans uh, on earth and why we're here and why we're different from the other animals. That left a huge void. Because if you go back to universities of Darwin's time, there were only two faculties. There was the faculty of natural sciences, and there was the faculty of the humanities. But today, in the universities, the largest faculty is social sciences. And social sciences has emerged because they're trying to justify humans' existence on the planet, and then also how we're different than the other animals. That's what the whole social sciences are about. And um, I've argued that it's um, the social sciences are simply human navel-gazing. But all of these things are interrelated in the philosophical consideration of humans as an animal and our place on Earth and our role on Earth. And, of course, the environmentalists uh, both have a contradiction in that they don't think we should be here at all, but they can think that because we're different from all the other animals. Yes, I very much agree with you, actually, that Darwin was pressed into this position as a tool of atheism, because uh, I think on a purely logical basis, you can argue very convincingly that uh, Darwinism does not necessarily lead in an atheistic direction, um, because there are many theologians who, I mean, actually, I, I don't fully accept the Darwinian position, but I know there are many theologians who are successfully able to hold on to their faith position and yet incorporate Darwinism within that. So purely logically, there isn't necessarily a, a contradiction. There. Yeah. One of the amazing things, though, is that um, when I was talking to Dr. Monteith last time um, we were talking about this subject, we touched on the historic role of Thomas Robert Malthus, who, of course, amazingly was a clergyman of some sort anyway, the, uh, the, the late 18th century, early 19th century. And we mentioned the basis of his essay on the principle of population. We didn't get into much detail about it. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how important Malthus is in helping to set the intellectual climate for population reduction concerns. Well, Malthus is enormously important uh, because um, Darwin had read Malthus. It influenced him, as he said, in his books. And of course, one of the things about Darwin is that everybody quotes and talks about him, but very few actually go and read what he wrote. Um, I, I call this carping on carping. I insisted with my students, don't tell me what somebody else said Darwin said. Go and read for yourself what Darwin said. And, and I did that with all, uh, all of the literature. 
I want to know what the person themselves said. So Darwin's accused of saying things he never said and accused of not saying things that he did say. By the way, just, for, just as an aside, Darwin became an atheist when his daughter, his eight-year-old daughter died, who he loved very dearly. It clearly uh, hit him hard. But anyway, back to Malthus. Malthus was, of course, uh, typical of clergymen of the Victorian era in England. Uh, they were usually the third or fourth son of some aristocrat or upper class family. And the eldest son went to the military and the next or inherited the property. The next one went to the military and so on. And then they also all most of them went off around the world. And there was a hierarchy to that. I mean, if you had a lot of money, you went to Africa. If you didn't have as much money, you went to India. And if you were, if you were a poor aristocrat, you got sent to Canada. <laughs> and, and, and it's a true story. We could talk about that another day. But I'm immediately thinking of W.S. Gilbert, of course, in Gilbert and Sullivan, who uh, poked fun at this system, didn't he? He was saying that various sons of the family turn out to be a judge or to be on the stage or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And, of course, being on the stage was the worst thing that could happen to you. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Malthus got very interested in the population and an agricultural issue. He developed the theme that had been around for centuries, in fact, Confucius and others talking about the carrying capacity of the land. A lot of this was being triggered by ideas at that time about ecology. That word uh, doesn't come in until the 1930s uh, when uh, Charles Elton uses it first in academic literature. But the idea of ecology and carrying capacity and Malthus proposed that populations which were becoming increasingly urbanized and abandoning the land and the demands on the food supply were such that as the population would grow geometrically, the food production would only grow linearly. But of course, one of the things that people forget or don't know is that, and, and what's under attack, by the way, by the modern day environmentalists, are the industrialized nations. That's what Maurice Strong in his comment about the problem for the planet are the industrialized nations and is it our responsibility to get rid of them? Well, Malthus saw this problem and he argued that or claimed that he saw the problem and claimed that he knew what the, the difficulty was. But people forget that before there was an industrial revolution, there was an agricultural revolution. The idea that civilizations suddenly pop up, they don't. They occur because usually there's a change in the climate, and that's usually an increase in precipitation that increases the biological productivity of an area, and the food supply increases. The food supply then creates surplus time. When you've got surplus food, you've got surplus time, and in that surplus time, you can create any kind of civilization that you want. Civilizations are simply artificial constructs. Uh, usually based about re around religion. Uh, but if you're going to build pyramids, for example, you've got to have an awful lot of people that have got a lot of spare time to be able to do that, and you've got to be able to feed them. And so that is the pattern that you get agricultural revolution before you get industrial revolution or civilization. Well, Malthus just thought that these were patterns mathematically that were going to diverge and bring about a collapse, that no matter what happened, the um, natural control of populations would disappear and, and the population would outgrow the food supply. That was the fundamental idea that became Malthusian. Now, that idea got picked up in the 1960s uh, by the Club of Rome. 
this group of elite people in society that uh, were doing like Malthus was doing. They had the time and the money and the wherewithal to simply investigate. Most people are simply trying to survive from day to day. And you see that in politics. The majority of people have two attitudes to political leadership. One was expressed in graffiti on on the walls in Pompeii in an election that occurred before the eruption of Vesuvius. And the graffiti says, if we get rid of this bunch of scoundrels, we just get another bunch of scoundrels. So they know that you're really just, just not making any changes at the top. We just play the game. The other thing is that in my study of civilizations, one of the things that I've realized is that revolutions occur. People will overthrow their leadership And the trigger of that is almost invariably a failure of the food supply. If you look at the French Revolution as a classic example, the animosity between the peasants and the aristocrats was always there. True, it was taken to extremes in France and in in Russia, for example. But that didn't trigger revolutions. What triggered the revolution in France was the consecutive failure of the harvest for two years. And of course, again, think about Malthus's arguments. You got to the point in France, for example, that in in the second year of a a failed harvest, the um, peasants were spending over 80% of their total income just for bread. And of course, at that point, after a third hard winter, they stormed the Bastille. Now, what happens, of course, is, and this is where Marx was correct, The revolutions are not triggered by the poor people. What happens is that when the economy starts to collapse, the rich start to hoard and protect their position more and more to the point where the middle class, who always think they have a hope of being aristocrats, they will support the aristocrats. The minute they no longer think they can be aristocrats, because the economy has pushed them out of the picture, then they will go and get the poor people to attack the aristocrats for them, and we call that a revolution. When you look at all revolutions, that's basically the pattern. And of course, this is what Prince Philip is afraid of. He's he's afraid that if those poor people get too many and the food supply fails, they're going to come knocking on the door of Buckingham Palace. So, as I say, with, with the Club of Rome... It was a group of elite people who were looking at the same pattern of things that Malthus had looked at. And basically, they became neo-Malthusians. But they, instead of just looking at one resource, the food supply, they said, no, the population will exploit and exhaust all resources. They also said that this would go at an increasingly rapid rate because of industrialization. Yes, it brings some benefits, but the price you pay is that it exhausts the resources at an increasingly rapid rate. And they put into place the old uh, terminologies, the buzzwords, the phrases that politicians like. The the classic one from Grow Harlem Brundtland's World Commission was uh, sustainable development. And of course, that implies this idea that We've got to have development, but development threatens sustainability. Therefore, we have to limit development and the population that are entitled to it. The term sustainable development, of course, I've always said is a wonderful political phrase because it means everything to everyone and nothing to anyone. I've discovered that the solution 
is to look at sustainable agriculture. Now, there's a term that works. And I said, well, why does sustainable agriculture work? And why doesn't sustainable development work? And the answer is because, of course, everybody knows what agriculture is. Nobody knows what development is. What are you developing? What do you include in that word? If you take sustainable development and turn it around, then if you develop a sustainable society, now we have something that, um, that works philosophically, intellectually, and in the real world. But they didn't want that. They didn't want people to know their actual objective was to limit the world population and for they as the ruling elite to determine uh, what those populations should be. Mm -hmm. So I go back to my comment at the beginning about Prince Philip, who decides? Who says, well, there are yes. too many Chinese or there are too many of these people and so on? Absolutely. I and mean, one picks up on that very much in the Club of Rome's publication, The First Global Revolution, where they have that famous quote about um, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill, etc. about how to unite humanity under these various problems, the pressure of these problems. But it starts off just before that sentence by saying the common enemy of humanity is man. And then just a sentence later, it says the real enemy then is humanity itself. So there's very clearly this anti-humanistic mentality there within everything they're saying absolutely yes and it's, it's a theme that you can find as i said that there are some extreme examples as we quoted earlier but it underlies and and you know uh, julian i got a lot of scientists who'll say to me okay you know i don't believe in in humans causing global warming i understand what you're saying there oh but that overpopulation that's a real problem Yes, before we leave the Club of Rome, there was on your website, you drew attention in one of your articles to a certain Sir Crispin Tickle, one of the patrons of the Optimum Population Trust. He's also a long-term member of the Club of Rome. And uh, you said that in one uh, meeting that he was in, he'd actually looked to the example of China. Of course, we know that China has had for a long time this one-child policy, and he was looking towards China as an example for economic and environmental development. And I did think to myself, is it really the case that there are people who are in these elitist circles who really do think that what's been going on in China is actually a good idea? Well, of course. And, and if you look at England before the war, look at the division between uh, the uh, the left wing, the socialists, um, uh, the Bloomsbury group people, and then the other wing with the uh, Mosleys and the fascists, and even the, even the, um, the Duke of Windsor. It's, it's, it, I don't think there's any doubt that one of the reasons that they didn't want him to continue to be king was beyond the divorce of uh, his wife, future wife, but his direct uh, relationships with Hitler. So England was very divided at that time. And as you know, uh, Lord Halifax was arguing that um, they should make peace and, and not fight Hitler and so on, join up with him. So those ideas amongst the elite are always there. It's just a matter of, of which one gets the dominance um, as to which way that the society goes. And occasionally these things pop out into the general consciousness through through the media in various ways at times. You were mentioning that uh, in the 1960s this neo-Malthusian idea was developing. And uh, I don't know whether you mentioned in this conversation Paul Ehrlich, but of course he did write that famous book, The Population Bomb. Could you tell us something about the gloomy predictions that he brought out in that book and why he was wrong as well? 
Well, of course, if one of his predictions had been right, you and I wouldn't be talking today because he basically said that uh, Britain would be gone by 2000. And now some some people in Britain might say, well, he was right. But that's another <laughs> politi political debate. But the interesting thing is I'm looking out of this window yeah. here and uh, we're, we're fairly countrified here. I actually can't see anybody at all. But there we are. that's another matter. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and uh, most of the world is unpopulated. Uh, if you think about Canada, the second largest country in the world, and we have a smaller population than California. Mm. So the idea that the world's overpopulated is a myth, and we can come back to that later on. But yes, the publications of the Club of Rome were very, very influential. Two of their publications were very significant. One was, of course, this idea of outgrowing the resources that we referred to earlier. And the book they produced about that was called The Limits to Growth. The significance of that particular book was it introduced the idea that we were going to exhaust all resources, but also it used a computer model for the first time. Now, it was a grossly simplistic computer model in that they only used a, a linear trend. They said, okay, we've got this amount of resource and we're using it at this rate and therefore we will run out of it by this date. And that date was, of course, then the limits to the growth of that particular mineral. And that book, Limits to Growth, because it came from a computer and because it was statistical, it got all kinds of credibility that it simply didn't deserve. Now, there was a challenge to the limits to growth. An economist by the name of Julian Simon challenged them and said, look, you pick any minerals you want, pick any time period you want. And I'll bet you by the end of the time period you choose, there will be more of that resource available at a lower price. And of course, Ehrlich initially refused to take the bet, eventually did take the bet and lost on every count. But the interesting side of it was Ehrlich in choosing the minerals and choosing the time period took a fellow population expert by the name of John Holdren. Now, John Holdren had published a book with Ehrlich called um, Ecoscience and Population or something like that. And they, they published this. Holdren today, just to show you how these people are still influencing what's going on, Holdren is Obama's science czar in the White House today. Oh. And uh, he was publishing articles with the Ehrlich and his wife. The, the book on ecoscience was central to that. They were promoting uh, eugenics. They were promoting putting birth control into the water supply, determining which women should be sterilized. And I mean, just a frightening uh, list of ideas. Oh. But Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, of course, with the limits to growth, came out and um, he argued that the, the world population was already beyond the carrying capacity that I mentioned earlier will continue to grow, and he made all kinds of predictions. Every single one of them has been wrong, and they were wrong within 10 years of their being made. I mentioned the one about England, and yet Ehrlich continues to have credibility. That's what's amazing about it. These people, as I say, with Holdren sitting in, in the uh, U.S. White, uh, White House and influencing uh, the policies Again, it is really amazing. Yeah, I mean, looking at that uh, book, Eco Science, there are some astonishing suggestions that are made in there. Yeah. 
Just a quote here. Indeed, it has been concluded that compulsory population control laws, even including laws requiring compulsory abortion, could be sustained under the existing constitution if the population crisis became sufficiently severe to endanger the society. So, I mean, looking at that face value, it seems to me that they are actually saying this is conceivable under certain circumstances that this could happen. This seems an abomination, really. Well, it's an abomination because it's a fraud. The legal definition of fraud is that you create a false situation and then you profit from it. They're the ones that are saying that we're running out of this and we're running out of that and the population's got to be controlled because that's the, the problem. And so it becomes a circular argument. Oh, yeah, well, then the, the problem really exists. Therefore, that gives us the authority to do what we're going to do. And, and this is the way that they work. You create the scare and the panic, and then that becomes the justification. It's the same thing. It's the big lie. It, Hitler played this game. And Holdren, as I said, now he was challenged of his views when he went up for a hearing before the Senate, before his, his appointment. And he just simply said, no, I've, I've given up on all those ideas. But we all know that's not true. In fact, one of the giveaways of all of these people is when they're young, they write and publish books telling you exactly what they will do if they get into power. I mean, Hitler's Mein Kampf, written while he was in jail, telling you exactly what he was going to do. And then when you get into power, you cloak it and hope that nobody's going to read about your former past, indeed. Yes. Um, do you feel that this agenda is actually part of the drive behind the theory of anthropogenic global warming? It's the total drive. The overpopulation, they keep going back to it. It's what I call daylight robbery. It's like with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that they just came out with. The summary for policymakers tells you one thing. The science report tells you that nothing that they're saying in the summary can possibly be true because we don't have the science for it. But they know that nobody's going to read the science report. And they release the science report after they put out the summary, as they did, as you know, on Friday and Saturday. It's this deception. And in 1994, they organized a world population conference in Cairo, Egypt, was the first one. And who was instrumental behind that? Paul Ehrlich, Al Gore. Al Gore was uh, the leader of the U.S. delegation and was a keynote speaker at that conference. And of course, it came out of the 1992 Rio conference which is where all of these ideas were incorporated into a global political agenda. The key thing, uh, Julian, in all of these issues is it's all about total world control. And of course, you need, therefore, issues that supposedly transcend the ability of local or national governments to cope with them. If you say the sky is falling and the climate is the end, that's nothing that any one government can deal with. Therefore, we need international government. So put us in charge of it and don't hold us accountable for any of it. And we'll, we'll save you from the sky is falling. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to that quote that I got there from the first global revolution. That's exactly what it says, where it says, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with various ideas. So it wasn't that these ideas were foremost in their minds as things to be dealt with, but rather they were tools to be used for another agenda, which was some form of global governance. Yes, exactly. And of course, that's what Maurice Strong, uh, when, he, when he was talking to Elaine Dewar, who was a reporter, investigative reporter in Canada, she wrote a book that I recommend people. It's called The Cloak of Green. 
And of course, we've heard the terms watermelon. I think James Dellingpole likes to use that term. Yeah, it's a great term. Yeah, yeah right. Because this is why uh, Patrick Moore, one of the founders of Greenpeace, uh, became disillusioned with that organization, didn't he? Because Greenpeace itself became so infested with collectivist ideology that he had to leave. Yeah, well, and, and I happen to know, I've known Patrick for a long, long time. And yeah, he said, he told me that within five years, he realized the Marxists had moved in and started to use it for a political agenda. And he tried for a few years to stop it, but eventually just said no. I could relate to you all of the horror stories of the attacks on him. But in Elaine Dewar's book, what she wanted to do, she set out to do, was to write a book praising particularly Canadian environmentalists like Maurice Strong and David Suzuki and so on. That was her objective. But being a, a good and proper journalist, and we've got so few of those left today, as she did her research, she discovered that these people were more corrupt politically driven than the people they were attacking. 20% of the book is devoted to Morris Strong. And Morris Strong, in my opinion, is truly evil. He really believes what he's doing, but he ignores the damage that it does to people. And of course, this is always the issue. All of these megalomaniacs um, are all about total and absolute control of every individual, and they don't care who dies while they're doing that. I mean, you, you start adding up the number of people that died because of Stalin, because of Mao Zedong, because of Hitler, and on and on and on. And when you, when you start to look at uh, the number of people that are dying around the world because of using corn for biofuels, so that the price of corn is pushed up so that food becomes um, beyond the reach of ordinary people in, in uh, underdeveloped countries. Now, that's an interesting question in itself. Do you feel that that is just an unintended consequence of these policies? Or do you feel that there are people who think that actually, well, why not? It's, it's good that some of these people die off. Well, of course, that's the contradiction, isn't it? And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. By the way, one person who's written about this imposition of Western environmentalism and ecology on developing world is Paul Dreesen in his wonderful book, Eco-Imperialism, where he said, look, we've developed policies that work in the developed world, but have no place in, in the developing world. But they don't think about, they, they think that the price is worth paying. But the contradiction in their thinking is, on the one hand, oh, you've got to stop AIDS in Africa, but you won't allow DDT that stops malaria that's killing millions of people. And then you say, well, if these diseases are killing people, wasn't that Malthus's natural control of population? Wasn't that one of the things, war and disease? So where is your philosophical uh, consistency here? But they don't want to think about that. This goes back to, is it Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring? Yes. And my understanding of that is that that caused um, a ban on the agricultural use of DDT because it was being so overused at the time. But because of that, it then became very difficult to get hold of DDT to use for spraying for anti-malarial purposes. And that's why millions of people died. Is that the reason why? Exactly. But again, the scientists who are using science for a political agenda produce the scientific evidence to support that action. So people could say, well, we need DDT. It's stopping malaria. Oh, yeah, but it's doing this other problem. This is a much bigger problem. So, yeah, oh, you've got a problem, but we got a bigger one. 
again, it's the sky is falling. And in the case of the DDT, the stories came out that, oh, that the DDT was getting into the natural environment and birds' eggs uh, shells were thin and the birds were not uh, producing young. And therefore, uh, we have to get rid of the DDT. And, and that's the way the game is played. So the basic premise then of all this then is that the world is overpopulated with human beings and that this is going to get out of control. Even today, people are saying this. In fact, this is what we hear most of all. I mean, on our beloved BBC, this seems to be the message that comes out most of all. We have, of course, Sir David Attenborough here, who is yet another one of these patrons of the Optimum Population Trust, well loved because of all the nature programs he's done. And he insists the world is overpopulated. He's been on many times saying that kind of thing. Um, But there doesn't seem to be any platform given to those people who disagree with that. And there are many who draw uh, a correlation between wealth and falling birth rates and who would then say that the worst thing to do would be to discourage economic development. You need to encourage economic development in order for populations to stabilize. And in one of your articles, you mentioned something called the demographic transition model. I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Yes, uh, just a comment about Attenborough, another one using a platform that he did really not uh, supposed to have. He's better than Meryl Streep, I guess, but <laughs> but um, uh, he's not as good looking. <laughs> oh well, that's uh, don't get me involved in those kinds of arguments. Um, the bottom line is they're saying, and Al Gore was one of the first to trumpet it. The debate is over. The truth is, the debate has never begun, and I'm very pleased to see that some people like The Spectator in in England promoting debates. There's nothing healthier. Uh, But back to your particular question, somebody noticed back in the 60s, and the first country that was studied was uh, Sweden, that as the economy grows, population starts to decline. The demographic transition began with industrial development, economic development, and the development of of economic and social services, particularly pension plans. So what happens is that the birth rate starts to drop, but then people start to live longer, so the life expectancy increases, and the number of people that live to older age increases. So there were people that lived to 100 in Shakespeare's time, but very, very, very few. And, And so what happens is that over a period of years, with the declining death rate and the declining birth rate, the total population numbers start to decline. So that causes a natural control of the population through economic development. This is the demographic transition model that you're describing here. Exactly right. Exactly right. And you can see this around the world. Developed countries with declining population rates And some of them to the point where they've introduced policies, Italy, for example, where they brought in a cash bonus if you had a third child. The province of Quebec in Canada does the same thing and other regions. Mm. And, And of course, these declining populations create huge difficulties if you don't offset the problem in some other way. And it, it, it's, is, it's, it's, yeah. so, sorry to interrupt you, but it's, it's very interesting. Going back to that optimum population trust, they do link to all sorts of research and the like. But the, the kind of thing that they plaster all over their site is uh, that, that um, you know, trying to encourage anybody wherever they are, irrespective of whether they're living in a, a country that's got this decline in population, trying to encourage everybody to have fewer children. Have a, have a small family page they have on their website. 
Well, of course. And and by the way, the most succinct and direct commentary on, on the human condition appears on bumper stickers. <laughs> Right. And one of the ones that was going around when the Club of Rome was at a peak was save the planet, kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which speaks to that same mentality. No. But but back to the idea about those countries with declining population, as I said, some have tried to do it by financial incentive. But those that didn't do that, of course, are seeing huge problems. Japan is a perfect example. Japan is in a population decline. It's estimated that on average you need, I think it's 2.6 children per family just to maintain the population. And you get these countries like Japan and, and so on, and Quebec was down 1.3, 1.4 children per family. A lot of countries have offset this, masked this with immigration. Canada's policy of immigration, the numbers are directly tied to the, the declining birth rate. So that as the birth rate declines naturally in Canada, then you allow more people in from uh, other countries. But that's just masking the problem. Now, in Japan, what you've got is the population pyramid, which normally would have a very broad base with young people. Then as they die off, the pyramid reaches a peak. Well, the, the, the Japanese population pyramid is literally upside down that the number of people in the younger ages is decreasing and the number of people in the old categories are increasing, turning the pyramid upside down. But of course, an upside down pyramid is increasingly unstable. Mm. It's very interesting. The, the guy called uh, Stephen Mosher, I believe he's uh, the in charge of the Population Institute or something like that. Anyway, he's, he says that uh, the, the problems like this are actually shaping up for China of all places. We think of China as being this great industrial uh, center of growth, which of course it is. But nevertheless, because of the policies that they've been pursuing all these years, they're actually building up for themselves a huge problem in future. Exactly the same kind of pyramid structure that you've just been talking about. Well, and of course, there's, there's two things that have exacerbated that. One is, of course, that deliberate government policy of one child per family and no thought to what the people would do to get around that. Now, if you're wealthy, you can afford an extra child, but that child doesn't exist as far as the government's concerned. And of course, you also get the uh, cultural tradition that they want a, a male as the head of the family, again, because the male would take over and run, and run things and so on. So you develop infanticide. You've had this, these stories in England recently of people trying to predetermine what the sex of the child is in order to predetermine the outcome. So horrendous things develop as people try to find their way around these stupid government policies. And in China, you've got the growing problem of the number of males to the number of women and young men not being able to find a bride all of the problems down the road that are that are going to come with what these policies do. And of course, it's what it's what happens when mm. policies are done for political agendas, not for natural and real and um, proven understandings uh, and, and making those the basis of your agenda. So, yeah, China and many other countries are headed for huge difficulties. What you've got to do is allow development, and that will resolve the problem, as the demographic transition model illustrates. 
Do, do you also feel, as I do, that it's rather reprehensible the way these people tend to play on the morality question? So they will say that you really should have very few children because really, if you don't, you're going to cause such damage because of the production of carbon dioxide and the like to the environment. And therefore, by having children, you're acting in an immoral way. I mean, this is bringing in beginning almost to bring in religious language to this i find that rather disturbing well it's disturbing but it's not a not surprising because of course what we're talking about here is that environmentalism has become a religion it, it's all about control of the population and you do that by whatever means are possible hmm. and and by the way of course remember we talked about through darwin and science you get rid of religion so now environmentalism becomes a new religion, and then that gives the environmentalists the moral high ground. So it isn't just that, oh, well, you've got to reduce the population, you should only have two children maximum and do your thing by the planet, but they do that with everything. Oh, well, you know, um, you don't care about the planet, you don't care about the future, you don't care about the grandchildren, and so on and so on. It's all this moral high ground of persuasion Sure. And that seems to be very much part of the Earth Charter. I mean, I, I don't know whether Mikhail Gorbachev said the things that are attributed to him. And I, I believe he's supposed to have said something like, I think that the Earth Charter is the new form of the Ten Commandments or something along those lines. Whether that's, yeah. that's his words or not, I don't know. But it does seem to be, you know, something of that sensibility going on there with the Earth Charter. Do you think so? Oh, totally. And, and look at the connections. The Earth Charter and Agenda 21, which was the political manifestation of it, grew out of the Club of Rome. I mentioned Morris Strong. He's the link. Morris Strong was a, a charter member of the Club of Rome. And I've talked to people that grew up with him, that knew him. He took the Club of Rome agenda. And when I mentioned uh, Elaine Dewar's book earlier, The Cloak of Green, uh, he said that comment about the problem of the industrialized nations isn't our duty to get rid of them. Elaine Dewar said, well, if you believe that, why don't you run for politics? And then he said probably the only honest thing he's ever said when he said that uh, you can't do anything as a politician. That is, of course, what so many of these people that say, well, I'm going to get into politics and go up to, to London or wherever and change things. And of course, they get up there and they immediately get subsumed. And the real power is to be a bureaucrat. Exactly. Oh, of course. Mary McCarthy mm. said that bureaucracy, the rule of no one is the modern form of despotism. It's absolutely true. But when Elaine Dewar said, well, if you're not going to run for politics, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to go to the United Nations where I can get all the money that I want and not be accountable to anybody. He then got into the United Nations, set up the United Nations Environment Program. That was totally his production. And from that came, of course, Rio 1992, in which they introduced uh, Agenda 21. And with Agenda 21 came a set of principles. One of them, for example, principle 15, is basically the um, precautionary principle. Look, you should do this even if the science doesn't support it. So in other words, forget the facts. If you can argue that it's going to save the world and save the environment, 
then it, that's all the reason you need to doing it. Indeed. Hasn't uh, Timothy Worth said something along those lines? Even if the science turns out to be wrong, at least we've been doing the right thing as a policy. That's um, Timothy Worth, the U.S. senator, as he was then. That was the statement he made to, to PBS, and that's on the record, yeah. And others have said it. Christine Stewart, uh, the Canadian Minister of Environment, said it. Um, and and it, it's this precautionary principle. Mm. Don't question the facts. If you think it's a threat, then act on it. But, of course, the problem is you can't act on everything. You can't deal with it all. You don't even consider the possibility that even if there is some truth to anthropogenic global warming, then it might actually be better to spend those resources dealing with any problems that might arise afterwards. You don't even think of it from that point of view. No, and that's, of course, engendered in what we talked earlier about, the debate. Mm. That once you, you set out to prove what your hypothesis, which science should never do, science should disprove, what Karl Popper called falsifiability, once you try to prove it, then you ignore the facts, you ignore the evidence, you decline debate on the issue, and you just keep pushing ahead with your agenda. Again, it's smacks of Hitler's big lie. And this is why, of course, people like yourself, who've been challenging this for years, just get ignored and called rude names. Well, uh, yes, exactly. And and this this was particularly true with, with these issues that they've chosen in the scientific field, because they know that 80% of the population, you put a number in front of them, they faint. Right? <laughs> yeah. They're proud of not being able to count. But if you tell them they can't push a pencil, they'll kill you. About 20% of the population are comfortable with science. But in, in that 20%, uh, it's much easier to control. So anybody in the science group that dares to question can, is easily marginalized. And the way that's done, by the way, um, and this proves that what they're doing is purely political, is in the use of terminology. So you give somebody a, a group or a name that you put them into. One of the ones was uh, the consensus. Oh, uh, the consensus, which means, well, it must be true because the majority of people agree with it. Well, consensus has no place in science at all. Mm. I'll give you another example. Anybody, people who had questions about Obama's background, why haven't we seen any papers? Well, what did they do? They said anybody that asked questions about Obama's background is a birther. So this idea of creating a group, you can shove somebody into that. Oh, it's a conspiracy theorist. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Right? Yep. In other words, well, that, that, you're some kind of nut job. You don't want anything to do with that. That's it, yes. And there's even a wider term, truther, which I find absolutely incredible. The idea that somebody who's actually trying to find out the truth about things should have a oh, term course. slapped on them. You're a truther. Well, yeah, yeah, too right I am. I want to know the truth about it. <laughs> oh, exa exactly. But this is all evidence of, of that political game. To marginalize people that mm. dare to ask questions, well, it happened with me. It's always oh, not a climatologist. Always oh, not a scientist. <laughs> oh, paid by the oil companies. That's another one. Which you're not. We have to make it clear. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I, well, let's let's say I'm still waiting for the check. Yes. But but think about that. If I'm paid by the oil companies, it doesn't matter because my science has to hold up. It doesn't matter who pays you. And why is money from a company? Yes, it can be directed, no question. But why is that any different than money from Greenpeace or from a government department? And you've seen how corrupt the UK Met Office is and what's going on there. Why is that money any different? And by the way, that was Strong's genius. Everybody I've talked to about him said he was a genius at organization. 
And that's why he, through the United Nations, he did the global warming issue through the IPCC. Who's uh, in, in the IPCC? They're all people appointed by the bureaucrats of the national weather agencies around the world. So it's a bureaucratic agency. And what happens? They go to their minister and say, look, global warming, you've got to stop CO2. You've got to take alternate energies. And the politician says, oh, I don't believe you. Oh, we're the experts. How dare you question us? And of course, you see it with Obama. He's bypassed the political controls and the legislative controls that the founding fathers put in and has gone through the bureaucracy direct to the EPA. So the EPA are now determining who can produce so much CO2 and who can have, who can do what. So it's all about control and ways of, of manipulating and controlling a system and silencing anybody that dares to question it. And of course, what's really hurt, one of the things the founding fathers in the U.S. did, they said, look, the people that have got to monitor and, and seek out these corruptions and wrongdoing are, are the media. Well, the media, in the case of global warming, have been on side. Who was more on side than George Monbiot at the, at the Guardian? Who was more on side than the BBC? They've become the gossips in the global village. They're the ones that are, are, are um, have bought into it when, when their real job should be saying, no, I want to hear all sides of things. And, and so the media have failed very, very badly in, in their role. Absolutely. In fact, this is one of the things that made me so suspicious of the whole scene was the very way in which particularly the BBC, again, were propagandising. It's so obvious. In fact, with a number of these issues where you want to find out the truth about it, you, you get the impression that there is an angle and there's somebody breathing down the producer's neck to say, look, this is yeah. the kind of message we want. And the BBC, of course, is supposed to be impartial, but they are anything but these days. Well, and, and of course, that's what's wrong with it. That's why I prefer, like with the newspapers, you know The Guardian is so socialist and left wing. You know it's biased. Biases are only a problem if you're not aware of them. That's very true. Right? The real duplicity mm. is in the BBC saying, oh, we're not biased. I'd rather they come out and say, yeah, we're terribly biased. And then, and of course, people deal with the BBC. They really don't have much choice, but they deal with it by turning it off. What's scaring them to death now is, of course, the internet yes. is the first time that information, which is really power, becomes democratic. The fact that you're doing this blog and I'm doing this blog and that the blogs are replacing the mainstream media for most people for their information. And, of course, the threat of the Internet to these power brokers and these uh, megalomaniacs is they're already trying to undermine the Internet, to limit it, to control it. It's a threat to them. That's why you've got to do everything possible to keep the Internet open and free. That's where the real battle is going on in terms of democracy. And how long has it taken us to come from Magna Carta to that? And I'll give you, I'll give you a, the perfect joke for this was American tourists wanted to see Runnymede. And they said, well, you know, when was this Magna Carta signed anyway? And the tour guy said 12.15 and the American looked at his watch and said, gosh, missed it by 20 minutes. <laughs> Old jokes, but good jokes. There was um, one question that I wanted to ask you, which is, is kind of related to what we've been talking about, I guess. It's very controversial. I don't know whether I will include it in the edited version or not, but I, I want to ask you. you. You did have something on your website about it, uh, but I didn't pick up from it quite where you stood on the issue. And that's the issue of geoengineering. Oh. Now, I um, spoke to 
Eric Karlstrom probably about three or four months ago, maybe more, and uh, he is of the opinion that there is aerial spraying going on and the we see chemtrails in the sky, etc. And I had to say to him at the time that I'm, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that this is going on, but I have to say that the evidence that I've seen and heard so far doesn't persuade me that this is actually going on as a global program at the moment, although there may well be some pockets of experimentation and the like, but I'm not persuaded at the moment. Can I just ask you what your view of this is? Yeah, I've been involved in the geoengineering issue from the time that I started looking at climate and the environment. And of course, humans have been dabbling with geoengineering from the beginning of time. Rain dances are all about geoengineering, (laughs) right? But of course, what's ironic about the chemtrails is that it is going on, it was going on, but it was a government attempt to control global warming. So here's another of those paradoxes. The same people that are screaming about global warming are saying, why doesn't the government do something about it? That's the paradox, by the way. You, you can hear the one person within a half an hour say, there's too much government. And a half an hour later, they're saying, why doesn't the government do something about this? And they don't even think about those contradictions. So people are screaming about uh, global warming and what a problem it is. So the government then quietly go about seeding the cloud. And of course, cloud seeding has been around for 100 years or more. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the people start screaming about it. The other sort of engineering they've done to try and control global warming was they decided that they had to reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. So they sprayed iron filings onto the North Pacific Ocean over a very large area. And that supposedly was to increase the biotic activity of those plankton that absorb CO2. Now, it failed. And they never gave any thought to the damage that was doing to the biochemistry of that surface layer of the water. Geoengineering generally is a disaster because in order to make it work and control it, you need to know what's going on. So, for example, back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, the concern was global cooling. So there were proposals of geoengineering then. There was an idea, for example, to build a dam across the Bering Straits and block the cold water coming out of the Arctic, which would warm up the North Pacific and warm up the North Atlantic and warm up the world right around. And the Russians were proposing this because they wanted a warmer Russia. And there were proposals to put huge reflectors in space that would reflect sunlight into frozen northern cities. But let's, let's assume that CO2 causes warming. It doesn't, but let's assume that that's true. When it was cooling, the proposal would have been, oh, well, we'd better add more CO2 to the atmosphere. Well, what would that have done if CO2 was in fact causing warming? Because by the time the 80s come around, there's now the globe is warming, you'd have aggravated the problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, like, well I, I can't remember the details of the thing that I saw on the internet, but I saw some uh, professional giving some presentation about the possibility of enge- geoengineering and saying, you know, there are all these various options on the table. And what we're doing is we're looking at the, you know, the, the benefits of doing it and also the, you know, the negative health effects that this could have, etc. But the way it was presented, I felt was that they really did feel that they had a handle on this and that they could do the research and then make these decisions about the geoengineering that could go forward. And I have to say that I don't have that level of confidence in their judgment on this. I mean, I don't know whether you think it's possible to know all the possible side effects of something like spraying that will go on. Well, exactly. Exactly. Um, You've got this difficulty that if you don't know what you're doing, you're liable to end up creating greater problems. 
in every case, you should always do cost benefit. It, I'll give you an example that you can relate to that, that's a debate in England right now. No proper cost benefit was ever done on alternate energies. All you ever heard about was the benefits of alternate energies. Now you're starting to find out the cost. You're starting to find out that wind power doesn't work. You're starting to find out that sun power doesn't work. But in the meantime, you've caused enormous economic disruption. So that's the difficulty. So when these scientists say, okay, well, we're looking at some of these geoengineering ideas, fine, you should do that. And in every single thing that humans ever do, there is a cost and a benefit. But make sure that you do both, that you do the costs and the benefits. Then you can decide, are the benefits, do they outweigh the costs? Can we mitigate the costs if necessary? But until we start doing that honestly and fairly and above politics, it's not going to work. So you are persuaded then that we do in fact see chemtrails in the sky from time to time and that this is a clandestine spraying program that's going on across the globe. It was. They've cut it back and they cut it down. It was only done in certain areas. It wasn't very effective. Also, what happened was I've got the article on my website with photographs. Uh, so many of what they were, what people were claiming were chemtrails were in fact natural contrails from aircraft and also what's called noctilucent clouds, that is clouds in the stratosphere. Those things I think are coming about because more and more aircraft are flying in the lower stratosphere. Uh, with the new pressurized airplanes and with the more efficient engines at higher altitudes, most commercial flights, especially in the wintertime, are in the lower stratosphere. Now, we can solve the problem and reduce the cloud formation in that lower stratosphere and, and reduce the contrail or uh, what they're seeing as chemtrail by having the aircraft fly lower. But the problem is then the energy costs for the air flights would go up and people uh, would not be able to afford to fly. But yeah, there was without doubt some chemtrail uh, studies going on. I can tell you, by the way, Julian, having served in the Canadian Air Force for nine years, having been involved in, in uh, anti-submarine work and so on, the military and governments are doing so many things that the public have absolutely no idea about. For example, this is no longer classified. They've still got them there. But all around North America, there are microphones on the bottom of the ocean on the continental shelf put there to monitor and listen to submarines. That was going on 60 years ago. How many people knew about that or even know about it today? So that's the issue that you need to be looking at. Indeed, and I have a, an example from my own life is that I used to live on the south coast of England and I found out a few years ago that the Ministry of Defence, uh, through the research at Bolton Down in the south of England, were actually spraying biologically across towards the coast from the sea with various bacteria. These experiments were going on. And uh, when I was living there in, in that area of the world, you know, as, as it happens, I had bronchitis every six weeks. Yeah. Now, whether there was any link with that, of course, I don't know. But these things were going on. And presumably, you know, your local GP knew yeah. nothing about it. But yeah. there's a possibility that some people were, in fact, becoming infected with these biological organisms that were being sprayed under testing, thanks to Porton Down. Right. And we knew nothing about it until about two or three years ago. I, certainly, I found about it. Well, exactly. And of course, what did the government do with that? Oh, oh, it's for defense. It's for your own good. We know what's good for you. Trust us. And of course, the more you look at governments through time, 
You don't trust anybody. That's what the founding fathers, when they wrote the U.S. Constitution, they said, look, people are people. They're going to find ways of beating systems and exploiting systems. So if you start off with the assumption that people are basically good, you're going to have a problem. And and um, so uh, my concern is the credibility of science is on the line. And, uh, and unfortunately, the credibility of proper, sensible cost-benefit analysis environmentalism on the line. People will start to say, we don't believe anything you tell us. And by the way, Julian, I came to terms with that many years ago because somebody came up to me after a presentation and said, well, you know, Dr. Ball, you're giving comfort to the polluters. And that bothered me. I mean, genuinely bothered me at that time. And then I started to think about it. And then I started to realize, no, the more comfort to the polluters is going to be when it comes out that you've lied about what's gone on. Then the polluters can say, see, those guys lied to you before. Don't listen to anything they tell you. That's the greater problem. So I suppose the last thing that I really do need to ask you is if there's anything that we can do about any of this, because we've got to the point now, I think, where a large proportion of people don't fully accept what they're told about uh, anthropogenic global warming and the like. And yet it's just assumed to be true in the mainstream yes. media. Yeah, okay. There's this lack of a connection between the two. It just goes on in these uh, powerful circles. And we're just the recipients of this message, the other side of the TV screen. What can you actually do about anything? Exactly. And that's the frustration. And so people just hunker down and look after themselves and, and uh, you say the next bunch of scoundrels will come in. But here's the answer to your question. We talked about environmentalism, and it's what is called a new paradigm. And academics talk about paradigm shifts. When a new paradigm comes in, the majority of people they sort of say, yeah, we need to make some changes there. But how far do we go with this? Well, what happens is that a few people grab it and see a political opportunity for themselves, and they start to exploit it. Meanwhile, people don't want to question it, so they tend to go along with it, but they're still reluctant. I used to worry and wonder, because I got attacked by extremists from all ends of the political spectrum, what is the role of an extremist? And it finally dawned on me that the role of the extremist is to define the limits for the majority. That is precisely what's happening now with the environmental movement, that the extremists are starting to make such outrageous demands that even ordinary people can see the logic of it. So, for example, when Al Gore said the debate is over, even some of the mainstream media said, well, hang on a minute, Al, the debate's never over in science. But then when it got colder and they came out and said, oh, well, the cooling's due to warming, that was so illogical that people are saying, oh, hang on a minute. And so that's the point at which we're at now. The extremists, because they're realizing that they are losing control, have to become more extreme. They can't give up on their idea. So they push it off and say that we're going to experience warming in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years from now or something like that because all the energy is hidden in the oceans and that kind of thing. Oh, exactly. They come up with fredazzle, but then you point back and say, okay, but look, here's all, here's all what you said like we did with Ehrlich. You know, once your predictions come wrong, your science fails and you lose the credibility. Mm. There's a lovely quote, by the way, about this idea. 
from Tolstoy because the real danger in some of this is not the people like David Attenborough, the, the celebrities, it's the scientists that are still trying to sell it to you. They're the problem. And Tolstoy, uh, over 100 years ago, said, I know that most men, including those at ease with problems of the greatest complexity, can seldom accept even the simplest and most obvious truth if it be such as would oblige them to admit the falsity of conclusions which they delighted in explaining to colleagues which they have proudly taught to others and which they have woven thread by thread into the fabric of their lives. There's an awful lot of people on the IPCC and in the weather offices around the world that are in that position right now. Absolutely. It's often said, isn't it, that science advances one funeral at yeah. a time, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I, my hope is, uh, like Galileo, I'll be accepted 394 years after I die. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. It's, it's great speaking to you, Dr. Ball, because uh, not only do you explain everything ever so clearly, but you have all these wonderful anecdotes as well to illustrate what you're saying as we go along. It's a, it's a great joy speaking to you. So it's been it has actually been very wonderful again to have you for this second time on the show. So thank you ever so much for spending all this time with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And remember, the Internet is the democracy. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you, Julian. Bye bye. <laughs> 